Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. Natives of America, tell me a story, Father, please. And then I sat upon his knees. Then answered he, what speech make known or tell the words of native tone of how my Indian fathers dwelt and of sore oppression felt and how they mourned a land serene. It was an ever mournful theme. Yes, I replied, I like to hear and bring my father's spirit near of every pain they did forego. Oh, please to tell me all you know. In history, often I do read of pain, which none but they did heed. From a poem by Anne Plateau, who was born in 1824 and died in 1870. She was the second black woman to publish a book in the United States and the first to publish a book of essays and poems. As I introduce the writer, poet, and essayist, Joshua Whitehead, I want to say that I cannot know what it means to be invisible as an indigenous person, to experience cultural genocide, to know what it means to have the imperial system affect my family. I want to understand and reconsider my own relationship to the land and to ownership. Joshua Whitehead, provides us with a lens. There is much wisdom in his writing and in his words. He holds a PhD from the University of Calgary where he studied indigenous literatures and cultures with a focus on gender and sexuality. His book of poetry entitled Full Metal, Queer," published by Talon Books in 2017, was shortlisted for the inaugural Indigenous Voices Award and the Stephen J. Stephenson Award for Poetry. His novel, Johnny Appleseed, published by Arsenal Pulp Press in 2018, was longlisted for the Giller Prize and shortlisted for the Indigenous Voices Award, the Governor General's Literary Award, the Amazon Canada First Novel Award, the Carol Shields Winnipeg Book Award, and it received the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Fiction and the George Bonnet Award for Fiction. Making Love with the Land, his first nonfiction book, was published last year by the University of Minnesota Press. His work can also be found in a number of journals. Joshua, thank you for taking the time for this conversation on Turtle Island. I know there are people who will wonder where this is geographically. Turtle Island is a pan-Indigenous term for North America that encapsulates a lot of our creation stories. So you may have been privy if you've been perhaps in the northern U.S. Uh, or southern Canada. Uh, stories of the Cree or the Anishinaabe in which Sky Woman falls from Sky World or the Fourth World and onto the turtle's back. And there from there blooms into a land base of which is North America. And many say it looks like a turtle from space as a continent too. So Turtle Island. Before we look at your writing, and we'll be looking at 
Making Love with the Land. Can you tell us a little bit about your doctoral dissertation? Yes. So I had finished my uh, doctoral work in 2021. And then the next, actually, I think I finished. And then about two hours later, I was hired by the university. <laughs> I did my interview and then my defense the same day. <laughs> Just not, um, you got to have a strong mental fortitude for that. And so I, I was there about five, five and a half years, maybe six years. I wouldn't ever recommend publishing three books and an, and an anthology while doing your PhD. I'm a, I'm a Capricorn, I guess. I'm a, I'm a glutton for work. <laughs> <laughs> and so the thesis really kind of began as this idea, which people have, may have heard, um, feral fatalisms, to be you know, kind of feral to the nation state, to be feral to systems of recognition. And then the idea, which comes from, you know, queer affect theorist Sarah Ahmed uh, of queer fatalisms uh, to be faded towards death, but then also to be faded towards futurisms. So that was kind of the idea, which kind of mutated into making love with the land. I wanted to kind of go of a more narrative, narrativized approach to what we kind of consider the work of academia. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of saying English fails me all the time. No, um, <laughs> not true. <laughs> well, it works when it works, I suppose, if you can find the right algorithm of it. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm a, as an academic, I also find that academia fails the communities in which it's purported to you know, support, to work with. Because, you know, I can't go home and have a conversation with my grandmother and, you know, be like, you know, as Michel Foucault talks about the biopolitics of the imperial nation state impact us on a daily basis because of the prison industrial complex. So like that doesn't work, although that's needed. Right. So I find that, you know, my job as an academic and a writer is to kind of ingest these theories, these philosophies, you know, this, the literatures that we read. And then regurgitated into narrative, which is much more accessible than an academic essay. So making love with the land became the formulation of that. And within it, uh, you might have noticed there's a really kind of maybe more theoretic essay, writing as a rupture, which was originally the my academic exegesis for the book. My editor, Lynn Henry, with with Penguin here in Canada as part of Knopf and Penguin, just like was like, put it in, put it in the book. So it ended up becoming part of the book overall, too. So it was a beautiful hybridization of academia and, I would say, embodied knowledge. There's a, a sculptural artist, philosopher, he calls himself a materialist poet named Dario Robleto. And I heard a lecture that he gave on memory as a moral dimension. He said, I hope that it grabs hold of me because I want to grab hold of who's gone before. And I hope someone grabs hold of me. Most human lives, they're just gone. No one remembers, yeah. even two or three generations down the road. It's easy to start forgetting. And so memory has a spiritual dimension in that way for me. And I, I found that so in your book. So what I'd like to do, Joshua, is instead of in asking you questions, because I would like people to know about your beautiful writing as well. I'm going to read to you from the book, sort of read things that will lead to, to some answers and for you to reflect on this. Sounds good. I'm excited. <laughs> my father once asked a medicine woman, Lillian, what should I do about my childhood dreaming? Does he fly in his dream? She asked, to which my father nodded and she responded, Tell him simply to witness. 
Only the storytellers fly in dream. It has become my practice to witness and interpret what I think of as ancestral knowledge in the form of this act we call dreaming. It's there that I write. Yeah, dreaming is a very integral creative practice to me. If you have a privy to my cell phone <laughs> and you would go through my notes section, uh, I usually record a lot of the dreams that I have. I'm a very vivid dreamer. I've always been like that. Um, though I think there's been times in my life where I've like terrified my partner at like 3 a.m. waking up <laughs> and being like, the world's ending. And he's like, what is going on? <laughs> so, and I also have this like strange ability maybe that my dreams are like very narrativized too, which lends itself to writing, I would say, in that, you know, I, I can wake up, have this dream, and then go back to sleep and like falls right back into it. So it becomes like a trilogy almost or cinematic in that sense. And I find it very helpful um, for kind of a creative energy, I would say, um, specifically in the realms of things we might consider a genre, like speculative, horror, comedy, I would say, is there as well. And, you know, it all rotates in these continuums. And, you know, you're just kind of the witness in the eye of the hurricane, perhaps, there. It can be very terrifying, too. I'm no stranger to nightmares. Um, but I also find those generative. And so for me, making love with the land, Johnny Appleseed as well, I would say you know, segments of Full Metal, which is kind of a, a cyberpunk book of poetry. I would say the biggest, the nebula that's gravitating, that's the gravitational force of maybe this oeuvre of work that I've been working on so far, is really interested in apocalypse, really. Mm. Is really interested in what, quote unquote, the end or finality. Or kind of, you know, the universal ideology of like, what happens next? And, you know, I've, as an Indigenous person, you know, as a free and Ojibwe person from Treaty 1 in Manitoba, I've been privy to uh, conversations from elders and ceremonial, I'd say, I'd say, attributes to my life, such as sweat lodges and attending sun dances, in which, you know, our ideas of the end are never the end, because the end never ends its ending, really. So in that formulation, it's like a lot of indigenous ideologies and epistemologies and philosophies or ways of being, maybe to say it more simply, are cyclical rather than um, in this kind of, I would say, very straight line and, you know, emphasis on <laughs> the actual shape of it and then the heterosexuality of it all, uh, of beginning and done, right? Whereas like in indigenous ways of being, it's cyclical. So if you've ever been seen like a teepee uh, or if you've seen a sweat lodge, it's like the building of it. It's a complete circle, but there's two knobs. And then as I've been told and taught and I'm learning, the two knobs are elderhood and childhood. And they're so close, mm -hmm. they're always touching at all times, right? So like the energy, the life force, one's perhaps spirituality is like continually in this rotation of continuums. So, you know, childhood is just a leap over into elderhood. And that's why we hold children at the same register of respect, knowledge, and love, really, that we hold our elders in. You know, we say our, our newborns, our children, they come from the ancestral tongue, as I write a little bit about in this book. So I try not to correct them when they you know, are speaking or calling birds beats, for example. <laughs> and so dreams is, to reel it all back, dreams is like the, for me, the central tenant or like the motor of my kind of creative practice. And is again, right at the forefront, uh, you know, as I begin work on my next novel, 
So like dreaming for me is perhaps a way of ghosting myself out of a multiplicity of apocalypses that have happened to indigenous black queer people since 1492 in the docking of power on Turtle Island. As my mind prepares to hibernate, I count time. I think if 10% of the day is spent blinking and 30 and 40% dreaming, then we spent half of our lives inside ourselves. What does that mean to spend half of our lives inside? <laughs> a big question. I think making love with the land is full of these. And it's just the way my mind thinks too. You know, my perhaps my strongest answers are more, <laughs> uh, more of a, a knocked arrowhead of a question than a, a staunch answer. It comes back to dreaming too, and like the creative practice and you know, kind of the spiritual ceremonial elements of being indigenous uh, and being queer at the same time or two spirit. And so I suppose, you know, when thinking about this, and I think it's such a capitalistic way that we've been trained, a heteropatriarchal way that we've been trained to, to, you know, count our lives and our, our daily lives, our yearly lives, and then our longevity of our lives uh, as means of production, right? Um, so, you know, we've had, um, you know, like, again, we have like Marxism and, and Marx himself writing about this. You know, we have Dolly Parton, the goddess, playing nine to five on her nails, right? It's the only nine to five I will abide by is Dolly Parton's <laughs> nine to five. <laughs> and so, like, we kind of think back to that, you know, in any type of role we may be in, in any profession, as a student, as a, you know, as a, um, as a worker, as an academic, as a writer, that every, we're supposed to like have this like very regimented way of living our days. I mean, wake up at 9 a.m., be productive till 5 p.m. And then, you know, it's supposed to also be productive for the body and productive for the mind and, and all of these different things. And it's such a perhaps regimented or militaristic way of thinking about production at all times. And the production is never for the self but it's for the self to which the machination to which the self contributes. And that machination is a killing machine if you're anything but white cis uh, male, really. So again, like, you know, I had to kind of reconceptualize time that we might think is like wasted. You know, dreaming, dreaming and sleeping are not wasted time. And I think this is something that we all really touched, learned profoundly or profanely in the lockdown periods of COVID and the ongoing mm -hmm. processes of it is that rest and this idea of self-care, you know, that's not indebted to like getting your nails done, <laughs> like going to an $80 salon, right? Um, but just the actual practice of listening to yourself and listening to the non-human kin around us as we were reminded by that we were never really isolated or alone, but we returned to, you know, river walks um, or being in natural spaces as being reminded of our plethora of kinship. And so, again, to bring that back into like our dreamings and being inward, I don't think is a waste of time. In fact, I think it's probably the most humanistic experience that we should have to be reflectful, to be witnesses to ourselves and to others and to you know, practice an, um, an ideology of like fierce listening to one another. And I think for me, that inward, that inward movement exacerbates, you know, an outward radiation perhaps. And I, I really kind of try to practice that and letting myself rest, sleep, dream, be for the sake of, life really it's it's a pulse of life that i think we should be you know more attuned to because it does add the productivity and the long terms for complete 
humanistic, holistic enrichment, not to be like new agey, rather than just continual, continual machination and contribution. I call myself two-spirit instead of gay or queer, and I've had conversations with myself about what it means to paint myself ceremonially as femme. I do not call myself two-spirit to signify a romantic idolization of queer ingenuity. I do it because I, and by extension this name, I call myself, comes from the red silk of the Red River. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... You know, if I was to give making love with the land, so we talked about a motoring fascination and fear, the apocalypse or apocalypses to pluralize it. I would say there's say, three tenets that are you know, also the triad around this continually moving force, this motor, which is indigeneity. Uh, and to be more specific, you know, my Ojibwe Cree or OG Cree livelihood. It's mental health, as we've all been so profoundly changed, uh, you know, within a, a unfolding of historical global events over and over and over and over, you know, from the pandemic to the war in Ukraine <laughs> to I feel like every time I open the news, I'm reading about a new mass shooting in the U.S. today, just listening to Tennessee and what happened there. And so it's exhausting work and our mental health is so impacted by that. The third little note of it is queerness or two-spiritness, as I talk about. And, you know, for me, two-spirit is an identity category that is wholly attributed to, you know, indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. And there are global terminologies that are siblings to this uh, for indigenous spaces. You know, the Maori have their own, the Sami peoples, the um, Australian Aboriginals, the Pacific Islanders. If you're watching RuPaul's Drag Race, Sasha Colby has a great um, breakdown of, you know, of what it means to be two-spirit in Hawaii as well. And so for me, it's a sovereign way of identifying myself that isn't wholly attributed to sexual attraction, that doesn't define or connote me in any type of binary that's attributed to gender. It also, you know, allows me to be I would say like radical and a kind of very contemporary queer understanding of what sex means. So it has allowance for trans folks. And then most importantly, I have a very, taking this term on, I have a very um, grounded way of thinking about reciprocity in that my role in community is always to kind of enrich and give as much as I am, right? Like that continuum again. And so my gift just comes in the form of stories. And so I use this term, you know, I did used to use gay and I did used to use queer. But when I think of gay now, it's both gay and queer, their scope of history are so limited here on Turtle Island. In 1969, the Stonewall Riots, a very pivotal point in queer rights upon North America or Turtle Island, are so important. But in the historical, um, perhaps, arc of in queer and what we consider queer indigeneity now, that's yesterday to me. So again, Two-spiritness supersedes that. And I don't think a lot of queer, gay people who identify that way have that same historical legacy of being on a space and place that is Turtle Island, right? So when I, with gay, like, you know, all I picture is San Francisco and New York and Toronto and Vancouver and, you know, shirtless white gay cis men dancing on the backs of banks that are actively putting pipelines through indigenous nations. And, you know, when I think of queer, I think... 
you know, as I cited RuPaul's Drag Race, I think it's become so inundated in mainstream media and mainstream um, ways of being that we have words like queer washing now. That I can go to Target and buy a queer T-shirt or buy a T-shirt that, you know, has queer pride and a photo uh, of Stonewall or of the bathhouse riots on it. And so it's very similar to indigeneity. And like when it becomes so normalized and, you know, eaten or gluttonized by the people who are the proponents of power, it's sold back to us. So again, for me, queer didn't have the historicity and it just doesn't have the same feral teeth that it once did. And it, it still has an you know, ability to do that. But for me, I just don't have the time to wait while, you know, we have massive rampant indigenous youth suicides across Turtle Island, many of whom are trans, you know, queer, two-spirit. And there's no time to wait because our youth are dying. Queer indigenous youth are dying. And I don't, I don't, I need to be, I need to activate my queerness as a verb now rather than waiting for those teeth to grow back. I am in a space that was never meant to be in, in an institution with an indigenous academic population of less than 1%, with no classes regarding settler colonialism being offered, and in a place that trains lawyers to incarcerate Black and brown peoples without the pedagogy or ethics to think through systemic and historical preconditioned ideologies. <laughs> so this was my time uh, at UPenn, um, and I was there for an event that was put on, I believe, through EDI, uh, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, of that university. So I believe it was called the Kelly's House. And so it was a lot of queer writers who'd come in. I had some amazing conversations with folks there. It's a very, I would say, really kind of strong queer presence and community at UPenn. And, and then we were brought to kind of speak, me and another uh, queer indigenous two-spirit writer were brought in to kind of give a conversation or give a keynote um, to these lawyers, basically, people from across different disciplines. But we were in the, the kind of the hall of law, I would say. And it was so decadent and it was so ornate and baroque. And, you know, you have kind of this, these beautiful chandeliers, velvet carpet, teak mahogany uh, and gold banisters. And, you know, it's so profane to me to be in a space of decadent capitalism like that um while christopher columbus his statues down the road staring at us basically and so we were asked to do you know a conversation about what it means to be queer what it means to be indigenous and you know i had told the story as my father i come from a father who is a 60 scoop survivor was in residential and day schools, um, is now sober, but was addicted to substances because of these things, was homeless for a grand total of his life, was in and out of carceral systems and prisons, both as a youth and as an adult. And, you know, now uh, he was a loving, and he always has been a very loving and amazing father, but it wasn't until he kind of met my mother that he was kind of wrenched out of the, the rapids, I suppose of which indigenous men and masculinities are tossed within, the rapids that lead straight to the waterfall, right? Being in the space and being asked these questions by people who perhaps, as I maybe to kind of quote one of the essays in this book, they have never died, at least of all, in my mind. And so these people asking me these questions, perhaps out of goodwill, I have like, I don't think there was any kind of mean-spirited intention there. But again, these questions about change and affect and what can we do better, 
And you know, you're you're literally having someone on stage doing this, for lack of a better word, striptease, and you're like ripping apart the flesh, which is the memory, and eating it and eating it and eating it. And after the consumption, you ask, like, well, what do I do now while you're staring at a lick clean pelvic bone on stage? And so, you know, I just it's a performance of allyship at times. And I think allyship often right now is a performance. And I kind of maybe speak more to the experiences of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, where, you know, it's been years now of having these 94 calls to action, of, of which very little have been implemented. Uh, and we still have active, ongoing military and police presence in places like Wet'suwet'en, the water defenders there, Land Back Lane, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we've all kind of witnessed what happened with Standing Rock and or the Oka crisis, right? That's not gone away. And so I think that there's, for me, it was fundamentally abysmal to be on that stage answering these questions to fall upon someone who has not made allyship an active verb yet. And again, that may just come with time. But when you're in a population and an institution that's training you to do this, <laughs> I may be the very first Indigenous person, never mind the very first queer Indigenous person you've ever seen. To me, it's just like an extreme uphill battle, maybe, to quote Kate Bush, uh, left to do. And perhaps that wasn't the correct timing for me to be there. I write from the body proprioception. Story is attached to me integrally, umbilically, and we feed and nourish one another like regurgitant birds. I also contended to think one is a master, as in a master class, or even desiring to master the craft, is wholly violent. Stories are oratory, even when written on the page, but they require animation to live, and such animation makes story an animate being, a living vocabulary. So I might have to give a 101 on uh, or the Cree and Ojibwe languages. So in our languages, we don't have gender, much like, you know, colonial tongues do, like English, French, or Spanish, where we gender things. Um, so like, look at that masculine table and look at that feminine end table, right? <laughs> and so like, we don't have that. And Juan... There's a great writer here um, in the Canadian portion, or what's so-called, referred to Canada, of Turtle Island, Leanne Simpson, who has this amazing book, as we've always done. And she has this essay in it entitled Indigenous Queer Normativity, in which she points to our language systems not having, again, she's Anishinaabe, she's pointing to her own, but many across uh, Turtle Island do. We don't have gender, and, and so then we don't have concepts of like, uh, non-binary or um, gender non-conforming or queer or trans. We didn't have those because they were just normalized into ways of being, um, which is a very two-spirit ideology. Of course, we do now, uh, if only because of you know Christian indoctrination and colonial imperialism. But again, so our languages don't have gender. What we have is animations. Um, so to kind of reference something or to conjugate a verb or noun, we need to kind of decide what is and what is not animate. When something's animate within the language, it's a kind of akin to us, akin, uh, and that we need, that we are in relationship with and that we are in reciprocal relations with. So, for example, uh, a tree, a non-human being, right? would be considered inanimate by English and French. It is very animate to indigenous ways of being, although the desk would be inanimate. The sun, 
the sky, the rivers, the oceans, mountains, grass, rocks themselves are all animate in this way. And so with that, um, with kind of thinking through that, you know, it completely shifts our perception of what it means to be a person in this world and how we are in consistent relation with things non-human, right? So, you know, to poison a river by dumping uh, toxins into it is a murder. And to kind of excavate the earth in order to kind of get minerals is a type of rape. Um, So again, within indigenous ways of being, these things are relations to us and we are continually in relation with them, which allows us, you know, perhaps a, a way of thinking of, you know, People get terrified when you say land back to them as a movement. Not that we land back is not about the kind of ex, the exodus of everyone, but rather a complete reshifting of our relationship to our spaces and to our places, right? Indigenous people were never owners of the land, stewards. So land back can be scary because you're being you're reading it in a capitalistic sense of, you know, these these very angry indigenous peoples want our houses, they want this land back. And it's no, it's to ask to reconsider and reconceptualize your own relation to that land and to that land base, right? And so, yeah, I guess like the kind of the language systems for me posit me in such a way as to prioritize relationship, relationships with humans and with non-humans in order to kind of build a legacy for futurity. I take a lesson from my aunt. To be a raptor is to be prehistoric, which to be a rapture is to be futuristic. I learned from her that no one is ever gone. She still teaches me when I stare at her obituary, when she wraps her webbing around me like a papoose, gives me stories from the birch tree. Yes. So this is from my essay, My Aunties Are Wolverines. Making Love with the Land, I started writing immediately after Johnny. Appleseed came out in 2018. And, you know, we were on tour. I'd be kind of going across Canada, dipping into the U.S. and a couple international spaces. But I noticed this primarily in Canada, a kind of Canadian division between people who may be disempowered. So I don't want to say indigenous is a race because it is not. Uh, neither is blackness as a constructs. But the kind of division in Canada is indigenous and white versus the U.S., which is very black and white, right? As kind of the main proponents of visibility, perhaps, in media. And so here in Canada, because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or the TRC, <laughs> there's been this vivacious hunger and thirst for people to do better. And it's a, it comes out of a, you know, a general desire to better themselves, to be better allies, and to be better, perhaps, community members with Indigenous peoples, often who border major cities, right? And so, you know, I was on tour with Johnny, and people kept continually labeling it as memoir or um, autobiography, when clearly it denotes a novel on front. Maybe it's to kind of return to the previous question too, like the umbilical nature of it all. We, at least I can speak for me as an indigenous person who grew up on the reservation and, you know, grew up in housing projects, grew up very poor. And, you know, again, with a father who has a legacy of touching imperial systems at all times, with a mother and a grandmother who, you know, also have experiences with day boarding or residential schools. 
with the complete cultural genocide of our of our nations primarily, of which we have lost our languages, our the stories themselves will never be fully fictional in a sense that I can never divest or diverge my body from the text that we are creating in such a way is because I'm bleeding into it uh, and the characters blossom from that. So like with nonfiction, clearly it's about Joshua, the person. Johnny himself is perhaps a simulcrum of Joshua in such a way that the fiction itself becomes nonfiction and the nonfiction itself takes on fictional elements and there's poetic registers of it all. And objectivity is never objective because it's subjected to the subjectivity of a person. So all of these kind of truths and untruths and memory and remembrance are in this kind of locus of constellations. And that's the whole point of storying. When you mm-hmm. can kind of, when for me, when I can kind of see it like that, when you kind of place you know, a, a border on the page, which is very similar to the land, right? Like of genre and form, you're cutting off the limbs of the rest of that constellation. When you're like asking for very objective truth, through the lens of the pronoun I on the page, you're also creating this contract that delimits and perhaps destabilizes the idea of truth in thinking about it, truth as a narrative, uh, as thinking about it as completely objective. Like when we leave this room today and this conversation we're having, if we were both asked to write a page of what was our experience, we would all have very different experiences. And so for me, that really kind of comes into play when thinking about story as sovereign rather than story as indebted or as perhaps raised or imprisoned by genre and form. To let it be free, to let it be feral, to let the story sing as the story wants to sing. And so, you know, when I kind of came to this idea of my aunties are wolverines, my aunt aunt was. (laughs) She was a very, she was a very staunch person in my life, stalwart woman. She was only a handful of years younger than me, maybe like six or seven. And so we kind of grew up together our whole lives through the housing projects. And, you know, she was about like five, 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 six, very short woman. The, the, for the literal ferocity of a wolverine. And, you know, wolverines are very ferocious hunters. <laughs> like if you come across a wolverine in nature, like there's no chance, game over. Uh, <laughs> And so for her, I grew up with her, and she, you know, she was a lover of Madonna. Um, as they're right about in there, and she had the mane of, or the kind of the, the horse's tail of all horses' tails that would swish down her back way past her spine, and was very well known for terrifying the hell out of any man who came within her presence. She just had that <laughs> demeanor. And, you know, there is no more of a ferocious warrior than that woman with a plastic ladle in her hand. <laughs> So, and she was also, in a way, masculine in that sense, I guess we could say, but also highly feminized. She was kind of like one of my first queer role models. Not that she would or did identify as queer, but in the very presence of a person who kind of commanded gender uh, and who commanded power of the feminine and matriarchy over patriarchy and the masculine. And so it was very important for me to kind of conceptualize her in this historic sense through this kind of game we played as children called Raptor. I blame Jurassic Park. It was very popular at the time. But to kind of conceptualize her as historic, again, not to say that she would or did identify as queer, but she definitely held those elements for me. 
And then as a person too, to like take her name, Terry, and turn it into terror, or to take raptor and mutate it into rapture, she kind of held continuums and temporalities in her hand. And she was a magician in that sense. You know, she was... um, she was a spellcaster like that. It was very important for me to kind of maintain that legacy that this woman held, you know, who passed away very early in her life, in her 30s, to maintain her legacy and, you know, to kind of show the vivacity and the viciousness that Indigenous women can house as much as they are joyful, as much as they are cackling ravens when it comes to laughter. And also to kind of show that for me, at the end of the day, it is indigenous women and indigenous matriarchal systems that are both historic, which are ripped from indigenous peoples because <laughs> Christian missionaries are like women leading. No, and it's going to be it is going to lead us into a future if we can maintain and achieve it that will be reciprocal and will maintain an ethics of healing for ourselves and for the very land that we completely destroyed. My aunt becomes the avatar of all of that. And she, and she features so prominently in that essay and in this book as a symbol of historic futurity, maybe. Finality is a horrendous word. It eats, you know. It has teeth. I thought and still think of finality a lot, especially during that final weekend when we decide to sever and then spend every waking moment together healing. Finality as severity is a word that I need to erase from my vocabulary. It's too linear, too colonial. We, of course, as indigenous peoples, know that finality is simply an opening into continuity. My body rejects finality as an end stop. My own cells fight against invasion. (laughs) Finality, right? I talked about my obsessions with apocalypse. So I grew up in the housing projects in this place called Selkirk, Manitoba, which is just outside, maybe half an hour outside of Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is the capital, uh, which is just above North Dakota. (laughs) People don't know where Manitoba is. So I'd walk to school often and, you know, we'd have Jehovah's Witnesses come and they would hand me issues of their kind of journal, the Watchtower. It had all of these sensational headlines, you know, the second coming of Christ, the apocalypse, the rapture. Then you would kind of go, maybe this was very of the early 90s, uh, but you would go to the grocery store and then, you know, you would read like the Inquirer, you know, right at the checkout and all of these kind of tabloid magazines, which were so obsessed with sensational topics again, primarily settled around doom. I don't know if we've ever kind of left that, <laughs> that illusion, perhaps, that we're so inundated by it on a very material, basic sense from grocery store to walking to work or school. And so this idea, I I have been and always will be so obsessed. Uh, I also blame the Terminator 2, watching Sarah Connor burn in an atomic blast on the playground has wrenched itself into my mind. And, you know, for so long in my life, I was so terrified of it. I would hear like sirens and think World War III was coming. Nuclear war was at the forefront of my mind continually. And I'm sure that has led to some of my (laughs) anxiety disorder today. But I really reconceptualized it in thinking I'm fascinated by apocalypse now. In whatever form it may take, cosmological, uh, ecological, warfare, um, pandemic, starvation, etc., Because we got to see a tiny glimpse of what happens next, right, in COVID. 
you know, we'd all be like, the earth is healing. And we got to kind of watch, we got to watch wildlife return to Venice. We got to see, you know, animals, especially deer taking over our roads and national ha- natural habitats rejuvenating. And that to me is beyond hopeful. That is, that is what should be. So when kind of thinking about finality, this is a very different perspective, mm-hmm. as was quoted. The finality of this comes from the end of a long-term relationship. My first long-term partner, we had lived together. It was about five years. And this was prior to me you know, becoming, quote unquote, a celebrated writer. So, you know, I've always been a Capricorn. I've always had multiple jobs. But I think one thing that, you know, writing doesn't teach you or creative writing courses do not teach you is that it also, there's a gargantuan cost to the writer to write. One, it's memory work, it's the excavation work. You can never detach yourself fully from the page. Readers still infer that that is you. And then it also costs a great deal of time. <laughs> and so like, I'm not a strong believer um, in that, you know, we, writing is a solitary act. That we're not all kind of <laughs> Hemingway in that sense. If we're not just you know drinking whiskey at sea, catching fish, and writing great novels into the night, we consider it as such. But we do so we don't write in this vacuum. We're always in consistent conversation, as we are here. We're in communities. We're at festivals. We're on tours. We're giving conversations about that about craft, and so it ate up a lot, a lot of time. And that was obviously the became a dissolution to this relationship. So it did cost me relationships too, our relationship. And, you know, as a queer person, as an indigenous person, I am often the only person in the room. (laughs) I was the very first indigenous person to finish a PhD at my university. The limited courses on indigeneity, let alone gender or sex or sexuality within indigenous concepts. And I think I had kind of become far too familiar with isolation before COVID. This was 2019, before the pandemic had happened. Um, I had become far too familiar with the solitary act of being that I didn't want to kind of perpetuate this ideology that as queer people, that we must abandon one another because our communities are already small enough. And this comes out of a conversation that the late Heisla writer, Coast Salish writer, Lee Maracle, Canada, she did a keynote presentation once at the University of Calgary. And I, I was kind of part of the organization that put it together. And she was alongside Leanne Simpson. And folks may or may not know, uh, Richard Walgamies, who also passed away a handful of years ago, uh, is probably most well known for his book, Indian Horse. Uh, which also was adapted into a beautiful film. And, but the, again, Richard Wagamese was, you know, a survivor of residential schools, was an addict, was, you know, had substance abuse issues and was working through them. Richard had died. I mean, this was kind of a conversation that was happening on stage during Lee's keynote. She kind of stopped the whole conversation and had asked us, why are we showing this pu- posthumous love and adoration for a writer and a person? Right now, in this time, when we had all kind of abandoned him in the moments in which he had needed help, right? And so she had made this call to never abandon anyone unless it was like egregious harm. And I'd really taken that in, into my life. And so the Joshua tree of which this comes from, for me to kind of combine all of these stories together, was a way of thinking, 
of rejuvenation of relationships because the idea of finality, again, if no egregious harm has been done, to abandon one is to kind of delimit the communities of which we are from. And here, the queer community in Calgary, to bifurcate the space that is already too minuscule would be a complete rupturing of well-being for myself and for for my ex-partner, who's now a good friend of mine, and for all of the relations that we had in this gravitational force, too. And for me, it comes from this kind of colonial understanding of ownership. And there's just this weird thing when you speak to someone, you're like, oh, that's my ex. And the my infers the ownership. The ex refers to kind of this, you had placed all of these affects and emotionality and expectations and, and life force into this object of what you kind of put on this pedestal or you buried in the ground, but you still said that is mine. And so for me, yeah, I just could not allow myself to abandon a person of which was so important in my life uh, and no intense harm had been done and to transform that into a new way of being, which for me was a practice and a way of being like ethically in relation with myself, with this person, and then again with everything surrounding me. So I, I wanted to, you know, take this kind of overdone, generic, cliche essay or a story of the breakup and instead show how the breakup and the very land we were tied to here in Calgary along the Dover Hills and the Bow River, of which we were very attuned to, was in fact the kind of this, the natural spaces where is where a transformation had happened on the connection level and the molecular level, transforming love and relationships into a kind of a galloping friendship. Um, and we have built beautiful things together since. So. I hope I wanted to show folks that transformation is possible, as difficult as it is. And this idea of ownership when it comes to relationality between ourselves and others is a very violent way of thinking about who we are to each other. In another history, which is to say that present moment in which I experienced this and this future ledge from which I perch now the sky blooms like a wound, a corsage or a wormhole or a needle's eye. And I thread into its weavings. I am dancing sky holding burning cherub, babies rushing into elderhood, weeping for motherhood. And I am birth giver, star stalker, the grandness of a body whose pouch I zippered out of to be here in this body named Joshua. The sky is ablaze, not with apocalypse, although surely this is an ending, but with a mouth slightly ajar, teeth askew, and tongue slipped in a curve to suckle milk. Here, Creator blesses me, a bobbin now unwound fully on the seat of his Chevrolet, and tells me, take what you need. Take it all. This is a gifting for you. But make sure you gift something back. <laughs> and I think <laughs> I will say, Joshua, that through your writing, you have gifted so much back to us. Oh, thank you. So much understanding. You, you help those of us who want to try to understand, knowing that we can't in many ways. We can't understand, but we want to be brought into the conversation, and you do that. Yeah. You know, I think it's just an ethic, an ethical way of reading, writing, and being. And the, and the protocol that I try to follow, too, I can't purport to know 
the Black woman's experience, the trans experience, right? I can't purport to know uh, what it means to be Muslim. And so what I can do is read their stories <laughs> and meet them mm-hmm. on the page knowing that it had cost that writer to write, right? Mm-hmm. And I try to do it in a way, which I think is like the beauty of writing and the beauty of stories, maybe, maybe poetry, novels, nonfiction, plays, et cetera, et cetera, is that there are a handful of books that we will encounter in our lives that will fundamentally change us. And there are other books of which, you know, we maybe read and we enjoy and then we come back to two or three years down the line and we're like, this is speaking to me in a very timely fashion. Toni Morrison's Beloved did that for me. I come back to that book often because I learn new things about writing, about myself, even though we have very different experiences, right? Toni Morrison as a Black woman, very celebrated writer, and myself as a like, small town queer indigenous writer. But our connectivities meet in the middle And not so much that those connectivities are about trauma and pain. Actually, I think they're about joy. Tony Morrison taught me so much about finding joy in the mundane and finding, you know, um, what can I say here? Finding joy in the wreckage, really. So Tony Morrison was that for me. One of my most joyful reads, which is going to sound very (laughs) oxymoronic, uh, is Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Again, a novel about apocalypse, but at the same time, it's a novel that really, like a directorial eye, hones in on connectivity between father and son and existential philosophical questions about morality. You know, while the the earth is dying around them, but that's, again, beauty and joy to me. And so they, they taught me things. And so in wanting to better ourselves as people and as allies, again, I really remind myself that I am a guest in these books, in the, in the space between spines. Not everything is going to be for me, and that's okay. Some things will be, then some things will challenge me. And I sometimes think being challenged and shattered is a strong proponent of renewal and strength and allyship. Um, and some things, you know, will just be blocked up. And it is not my space to enter. And that's okay, too. I can move around the house. I can still look at the landscape, right? And so I I try to always do that with books, specifically by BIPOC queer writers, by women writers, is that I don't, this is not my experience. I am a guest here. Thank you for teaching me. I take what I will. And treat it like a, a medicinal plant where we just snip off what we need. We leave it growing so that when we come back, it's a fully bloomed, you know, medicinal floral again. And I think that's the, that's the beauty of literature is that it meets us when we need it. So, you know, you may have had experiences of returning to a book and it just speaks so profound and timely to that very moment that you found within. And I always say like a good story finds us when we need it. Even my own books do that. I kind of reflect back or read Johnny Appleseed or now as I'm working on a new novel, reading Making Love with the Land. And some of these essays are as old as 2019, 2020. I'm like, who wrote this? This is now, like, I, how did I say this? And so it's bewildering to me that stories do that. And that's why I think of them as animate uh, from a linguistic sense, but also a very, you know, in a relational sense that I have with literature. They're animate beings, they're teachers, they're aunties, they're grandmothers to us. And we just need to listen and allow them space to breathe. But when we return to the house, it's full of a vivacious joy and love again. And that kind of propels me to the quote that you wrote from The Pain Eater, 
which is the final essay that I wrote in this book, which I never wanted to include. Uh, it was my editor who wanted to have a COVID essay <laughs> in the book. And we were still locked down. I was like, I don't, we're going to watch COVID films, COVID TVs. We're going to hear COVID music, read COVID books. It's just too much. So I wanted to write a COVID essay that really didn't really talk about COVID. <laughs> um, for me, The Pain Eater is the final essay. It begins with you know me being in, in the Radium Mountains again in British Columbia, just again, kind of near the Rockies, which is where I finished Johnny. And I was just on the other side of it this time. And then quickly delves into this vignette uh, of me racing across Alberta to go to Manitoba in the height of the lockdown periods. And I lived alone. I have a big dog, thankfully. My saving grace. His name is Chief. And, you know, I was just so overcome mentally, spiritually. I was so touch-starved. My family all lives in Manitoba. I was so isolated from community that, you know, ideas of SI or suicidal ideation were very prevalent at this point in time. And, you know, I had at this point in time, you know, I was developing very unhealthy coping mechanisms, smoking too much pot and drinking too much wine. And so I was a very unhealthy state physically, mentally and spiritually that I had to race home to Manitoba. I had to go be with my mother. We weren't allowed to at this time. This was a small window of opportunity to go. I didn't know if I was going to be allowed back, if the provincial borders would be closed again. And so it was like, this is my ticket. It's time. Let's go. Just jump in the car. Let's get out of here. So I did. <laughs> it's funny, like travel narratives in that sense. That's very beatnik-y, but like everything flashes before your eyes. Everything becomes existential. <laughs> everything is like in these rotations, the good and the bad, that, you know, you just overcome again. And so I was listening to like Brandy Carlisle. I'm a big fan of country women. Brandy Carlisle and Dolly and Loretta Lynn, <laughs> Amanda Shires, et cetera, and just sobbing the whole way home. It's a 13-hour drive. And so we're going, we're going. You know, you stop from some McDonald's to get a little dopamine here or there. And then I had crossed the, it was all in one go, too. So I had just crossed into the Manitoba border from Saskatchewan. It's about 12.30, 1 a.m. at night. Um, and, you know, living in a, in a city, Calgary, there's so much light pollution, you barely see the stars. And the, the sky was just lit up. And I just remember having conversations with myself, like, please, let something good come. Let me get there. Let things be all right. I had like the sweet grass on my dash. And as soon as I had crossed that Manitoba border into like the proverbial space of home, which is the province, right? There was this like decadent meteor shower that just blew across the sky. I had never seen a meteor shower to me. So it was novel. It was terrifying. It was so profound. And you know, you're just kind of sitting there under this kind of cosmological force or entity that overshadows you to the point that you become so minuscule. And within you, the kind of thinking of things like SI or suicidal ideation become even more minuscule. And you're humbled in the kind of universal this of this thing we might call God, right? And so it was very, you know, very important time in my, in my life. Uh, it had kind of rejuvenated me uh, as a kind of a homecoming, uh, as a as a humbling, filled me with awe. And you know, moment where everything was in a two and a half year period of lockdowns, everything was gray and abysmal. I got to see kind of undecipherable beauty, really. And so it kind of just reminded me that. Beauty is still living and still thriving. We may not always see it, but it is kind of continually dancing around us. And it, it does give to us too. 
So the pain eater was all about this idea, which came from this one moment of thinking about we eat all this pain, we're helping each other, but there is something that eats our pain too, and that is the very spaces that we call mother, father, uncle, auntie, grandfather, grandmother, which exists beneath our very feet, right? And sometimes in the kind of the cosmological sky that wraps around us like a papoose too. So it was a very, I'll never forget that moment for the, the rest of my life. It was so completely necessary. As James Baldwin said, home is an inexorable condition. Oh, very much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, Joshua, this has been one of the most fascinating conversations that I have had. And I so appreciate you, I said this before, bringing us into your world and sharing it with us and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge very much. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, my friends, for having me. And I look forward to seeing you to the future. Because we never yes. say goodbye in Cree. We say see you soon. So, Giton. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.